Because um, last week, uh, you know, we, we uh, continued to see what Peter was doing. Uh, uh, he was, you know, thrown in jail by Herod, uh, Herod Agrippa. Yes? What was the transition there? I'm just curious. We're going <laughs> to... You cut, you cut me... It's kind of a midway transition. I'm about to transition in a second. It's kind of a soft, soft survey to a transition. It'll be a callback in a second. So... Uh, <laughs> Let's just move on. Let's just move on. All right. So, so, so last week we saw Peter's in jail. Herod Agrippa uh, had thrown him in jail, kind of oppressing the church at this time, trying to win over the f- uh, favor of the Jews. An angel lets Peter out, and uh, he doesn't even kind of know what's going on at, at first when he comes to. Uh, he goes to a house of um, of uh, some saints that are praying. Um, at that time, knocks on the door. The girl that answers says, it's Peter, but doesn't let him in. And they're like, it's not Peter. It's probably his ghost thinking that he, he died. Even though at the time they're maybe perhaps praying for his release or praying for him as he's you know, in, in jail. But they're praying for him at that time. But they just don't believe that he's outside, you know, uh, outside their door. And um, they finally let him in. And uh, he says, you know, tell James and the other leaders. And uh, we see Peter leave. And that's, don't know where he went to. Some speculation we talked about, about where he could have gone to. Well, Herod Agrippa, you know, is like, where, what happened to Peter? And uh, a big search, but they couldn't find Peter. And the guards who were guarding uh, Peter uh, were executed um, for, uh, for allowing him to escape. And then we see kind of following Herod uh, to the coastline, he goes to Caesarea, and there's this big celebration. <laughs> A lot of pomp and circumstance. <laughs> and uh, anyone? All right. So, <laughs> um, and uh, during the celebration, uh, Josephus says he's wearing, um, you know, the, the Jewish historian says that he's wearing this uh, garment of silver, you know, that flashes in the sun, and the people confirming Josephus' account is uh, in line with uh, Luke's account, that the people were, were yelling, you know, the voice of a god, and, and hailing him as, you know, a deity, and uh, it says that he was struck down dead, um, and that uh, he was eaten by worms. Josephus says that he had this sickness for five days, and severe affliction, before he died, confirming again the same kind of same kind of story where you know, Josephus says he was you know afflicted for some reason. He saw some omen, knew it was his end of time. Um, that Luke says that it was uh, by the hand of God. We know that to be you know to be true to line up. And so um, so we kind of see. And as I was, this is what I was thinking. Like as I saw all the pomp and circumstance that was going on. Um, that the whole world can kind of gather around and celebrate, you know, a wedding. And weddings are great things, um, great celebrations. This was, you know, it was according to Josephus, this was a, a feast that was to celebrate Caesar. Um, but in the end, whenever that celebration, you know, falls flat, if, if it's not done with the recognition of, of God and to give him glory. I didn't hear, again, I didn't, I didn't hear, uh, you know, the sermon that was preached, um, I have in the past, and usually they, they are sometimes letdowns. Um, but whether God was given glory or not, in this circumstance, you know, the consequences can be <clears throat> can either be immediate. I think it was immediate for Herod um, because of him trying to win over the favor of the Jews. And again, this is at a time that God wants to distinctively show the, the Jews that that I am no longer 
you know, with you. We have kind of moved on, and if you reject my son, you have rejected me. And so by Herod trying to win over the people's praise and also winning over the Jews at the same time, the death to Herod kind of sent a clear message to all that kind of saw that um, he had violated uh, God's desire that you know, man should not get the recognition, only God should get the recognition. We also see kind of where his heart laid as, as well. Um, as we kind of, you know, again, we said that as we, we finished that off, you know, we saw the end to Herod's life. It was introduced at the beginning of chapter 12 and kind of fading out at the end of chapter 12. But also, with him fading out, we see Peter kind of fade off as well. We'll see him one more time in the book of Acts. But now the transition is to... A new person, not really new, but we're going to start focusing on him uh, really till the end of of Acts. So let me uh, start us off in prayer, and uh, we'll kind of dive into uh, to where we're at in this part of part of Scripture. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do uh, give you praise um, for all the little celebrations in our lives, whether it's birthdays, whether it's weddings, whether it's the birth of a child, um, that uh, I pray, Lord, that we always, that no matter who, whether we who know you as uh, the one true God, even those who, who don't call upon the name of Christ, that everyone recognize, Lord, that there is a creator and that you are sovereign and that you deserve the praise and glory. And Lord, that that will eventually uh, lead to the fact that this creator has sent a way for redemption, sent his son Jesus into the world, and that is through Christ, and only through Christ, uh, that man can be saved. And through the profession of Jesus Christ, that you are glorified even more. May you receive the glory uh, for all that you do, whether it is in celebration, whether it is in mourning, um, Lord, that your plans are perfect. And even as we see the plan, your perfect plans uh, start to unfold, we'll see as this begins this journey today for two men and how you uh, continue to direct them, help continue to direct our lives and help shape us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in the beginning, uh, really the end of chapter, chapter 12, we'll kind of pick up here, is... Uh, Now I'll just start with verse 23, where it says, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, that was Herod Agrippa, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Verse 24, But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So we see kind of the return of these two men as, again, right at the end of chapter 11, we see that Barnabas and Saul had come down to Jerusalem, and now we see them going back up, that they're kind of the bookends to Herod Agrippa, which we saw at the beginning of chapter 12 and you know, died at the end of chapter 12, and Peter kind of right sandwiched in the middle of that, uh, this narrative. But in verse 25... Uh, we see um, that Saul and Barnabas are returning from Jerusalem. So what was it that brought them to Jerusalem? We saw at the end of chapter 11. Remember why they were there? You go to 11.29. You see there, the reason for their service. Persecution. What's that? 
No, it wasn't. It, that's not why they left. Some people had gone to where they were coming from uh, because of persecution. What's that? Famine. So there was a famine that was predicted by a prophet named Agabus. And so, uh, verse 29, uh, because this prophet kind of said, hey, there's going to be a famine in the land, which actually we'll, we'll see will happen after the death of Herod Agrippa, if it's, uh, you know, if we kind of say, according to those uh, uh, you know, historians that had said a famine happened in 45, 46, Agrippa died in 44, um, that uh, they kind of said, you know what, let us support the church uh, down in Judea, um, and make an offering. And so they gathered money. So they currently, at this point, they weren't enduring a famine, but they had actually like had money that they had set aside for when this would occur, which shows the faith that they had um, in, in believing you know, the, the prophecy and then acting on that prophecy in order to support and give to the leaders in the church because the famine was to you know they wanted to help those that were in Judea so that's what they went to they went uh, bringing aid from Antioch uh, to those that are in Judea Um, and it says when they came back so they're going back to Antioch which is up in Turkey um, and uh, southwest Turkey Southeast Turkey. Um, and uh, they brought with him John Mark. Now, you guys remember who John Mark was? What's that? Writer of the Gospel. Writer of the Gospel of uh, Mark, so affectionately known as that. And which is kind of good to keep in mind because as we see John Mark in the very beginning, we kind of get a different picture. I don't know, maybe whatever picture you have of John Mark, but you get kind of started a picture of who he is and how he was used by God um, for strengths and weaknesses. Uh, who's he related to? Somebody's cousin. Barnabas's cousin, yeah. So we talked about that last time, that he's Barnabas's cousin. Uh, we'll find that out. Um, it's, uh, we talked about that, that a couple weeks ago. Um, and we heard of John Mark in the previous passage, in chapter 12, uh, because why? More so his mother. Chapter 12, yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was yeah, Barnabas' aunt, or John Mark's mother, it was that household where Peter went to and knocked on the door, and then they said, you know, you got to be crazy. And so you kind of see, you know, uh, how, how this family, uh, you know, continually is used by God in different ways, um, in supporting of, of the gospel work that is going on there. And so that's really where we heard, you know, we kind of, that's when we talked about John Mark a little bit. Um, but Peter went there to his house. Uh, he said his mother's house, but he was perhaps living there as well um, when uh, Peter escaped from jail. And so they would leave Jerusalem and they would go back to Antioch. And uh, it's Antioch that I kind of, you know, affectionately referred to as. Uh, Barnabas and Saul's church home, um, because we typically see that when they go back to some place after their journeys, they go back to Antioch. So for them, this is a place where you know they have already spent a year ministering. Remember, 
Um, Barnabas was sent up there to find out, you know, like, I think a church has been planted. Because of the persecution that happened, people scattered. Um, some made their way to Antioch, and we find that it was actually, uh, you know, the gospel was spread by people that weren't from Antioch. They were from kind of different places. And... Uh, shared the gospel, and that you know, Gentiles are responding to the words. They send Barnabas up to check that out, and he confirms that, grabs Saul to help him out. But for the last year, they've been pouring into these people, discipling them, teaching them, and, um, and then even you know, sending aid, gathering aid, and, and going on this kind of mission for them uh, to go. And so we kind of see with this, of them being sent from Antioch to Jerusalem to bring money, and then for them to go back, it's kind of like a... Uh, a trial run, maybe, for Barnabas and Saul uh, about what God is about to do with them. These two are, have been working together. Let's send them out on a little trip, see how they worked well together, and then uh, bring them back, see how faithful they are. Um, and uh, when they're back in Antioch, we see kind of what the, the next step leads to. Uh, chapter 13 is where we kind of see the call uh, that is set before them. Now, there were in the church at Antioch, Prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work uh, to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, so right at the beginning there, um, several groups and people are mentioned. So we see that prophets and teachers are mentioned. Um, and because of the way that it's framed, that it says that in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, uh, we know that Saul and Barnabas were teaching at that time. They also said that uh, in chapter 11 that prophets had come up from Jerusalem. So at one point you see when prophets made their way to Antioch, they weren't in Antioch, that uh, prophets had been sent to Antioch, but now prophets are in Antioch. Um, so what does that kind of maybe show you that over this year's course of time or a little bit longer as, as Barnabas and Saul, they probably went to Jerusalem, stuck it out a little bit as they were trying to see what's happening with Peter. And then when, when all the things happened and transpired with the Herod Agrippa, they, they made their way back. But what does that kind of tell you about, you know, what's going on in the church at this time? <clears throat> so it's definitely growing, okay? What else do we see? Not just growing in size, but also growing in what? Okay? So it's spreading out, and we're definitely going to see that. We're going to see kind of a, 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 a different makeup of the people. If you have prophets and teachers, you've probably gotten to the point where gifts are being developed um, and uh, either attracting those that are prophets that are staying. Um, and so it could be because of size or that we see prophets that are there at the church um, that uh, those gifts have, have developed over the time. But we see that, that this church is now becoming a solid and flourishing, flourishing church. <clears throat> and likely it's uh, prophets and teachers are those that are in the list that were mentioned, uh, you know, for the people that were mentioned afterwards. So we see Barnabas. We don't need an explanation for Barnabas. We'll continue to follow Barnabas and know a little bit more about him. Uh, do you guys remember where Barnabas was from? This will kind of come up in just a second. What's that? Cyprus, yes. Yeah, so he was from Cyprus, and we're going to see that, that in a little bit, and made his way to Jerusalem and made his way up to Antioch. And so he's kind of all over the place, but he, he is from Cyprus. <clears throat> then we see a, a man named Simeon, 
who was called Niger. Now that word is Latin for black, and so either he had dark skin, uh, he could be from Africa, he could be dark skin from Africa. Um, it's kind of where commentators kind of land for that, but uh, that was what he was uh, named for. Some would also say he is from Cyrene, uh, just like the next person that is listed, but that's not um, necessarily true. But we know that he's probably not from Antioch, um, but again, he's known for uh, for the color of his skin, so he stands out in a particular way. Um, we see, again, maybe some diversity, uh, at least as far as how the, the makeup looks. Um, the next person that's mentioned is uh, Lucius of Cyrene. Some would say this is Luke that writes it, but a lot of scholars say it's probably not Luke you know, himself that is uh, being referred to, but, but some have, have made that, that leap. Luke and Lucius are two different names. Um, uh, but Cyrene is in Libya, which is the country that's west of Egypt. So you've got Israel, and then you've got Egypt, and then you've got Libya right next to it. But it's uh, a town or a city that's right on the coast, um, directly south of Greece in the Mediterranean. So it would have been a place that would have been... Uh, you know, cosmopolitan for a lot of reasons, for trade routes and, and uh, a lot of those things. Um, but we see, again, people coming from either, you know, North Africa, people coming from, you know, other places. This guy is not from those that planted the church. What we, we said was a Phoenicia area and also Cyprus. Some had gone and planted the church there. Um, we see a person named Menean, and his, uh, you know, how he's described is a friend of Herod, the Tetrarch. All right, we talked about several Herods last week. Do you remember which Herod is Herod the Tetrarch? What other name that he goes by? So we have have three Herods that we talked about. One is Herod the Great. Second is Herod Antipas. And third is Herod Agrippa. So who is it it not? All right, so it's not Herod the Great because he's dead by this time. Okay, who's also dead at this time? Herod Agrippa, although he could have still been friends with him, but he's dead at this time. And also the third one is dead at this time, but we didn't really talk about that. And, but it's the second guy, Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is the one who was the Herod who's uncle to Herod Agrippa. And we kind of talked about him. You know, He had the sordid affair um, with, his, um, with his niece slash brother's wife, half-brother's wife. And we talked about that, and we had a little, little chart that we kind of described. Um, but it was Herod Antipas that had helped his nephew, Herod Agrippa, when he had kind of gotten in some financial trouble, gave him a job. And then when Herod Agrippa, Antipas' nephew, um, was, uh, when his friend Claudius, or Caligula, became emperor, he gave Herod Agrippa some territory, and then his... Uh, then was given the title King of the Jews. And it was Antipas that got jealous of that and asked, hey, can I have that title, King of the Jews? And then his nephew Agrippa said, well, you know, let's not fight over this, you know. And he kind of accused Antipas of stockpiling weapons, which led him to be thrown in exile. And then Agrippa got his land. And so you have all this kind of sordid details about how everything happened. But Antipas was exiled and died in exile probably about five years before we see this happen. But we see that Herod, uh, this man, Menean, was a lifelong friend of his. And the term actually um, is, uh, that is used for this lifelong friend 
um, is fed from the same nurse, which uh, would later just kind of mean that they were reared together. So probably grew up in that household, probably involved in all of those things, but probably involved in kind of all the politics and intrigue and everything that was going on. And even in spite of all of that, one, he would have influence because he would be somebody who knew somebody. Um, uh, but he also, what I mean, what's the most important thing? What's that? Knew the Lord, right? You know, even all those people who had all those things that, you know, beheaded John the Baptist, like his friend would have, you know, been responsible for that, that through all of those things um, that he, you know, shedded his allegiance to the politics and really submitted himself to, to the Lord and is one of these leaders that is here in the church at Antioch. And so... Um, and then we, we see kind of the list uh, finishing out with Saul. So we step back again and say, what does this mean? Not only do we have prophets and teachers, and we have some leadership, the church is growing, um, but when we see the people that are leaders, they're from different parts of, uh, you know, kind of the Roman Empire. Um, they are uh, different kind of diversity and background. Um, we see different uh, diversity in makeup and probably background and prestige and power and influence. And uh, these are the men that are leading the church at this time. The next verse says um, that they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So it seems that because they were worshiping, they happen to be worshiping the Lord and fasting, that this would be a regular practice of theirs, um, that this church as it's growing, you know, you got this kind of you know health that we're seeing that as they're worshiping the Lord, whether that's corporately or individually, and most would say that it's probably corporate worship, but they're also fasting uh, as well. Um, why would we'll step back and say why would why do people fast? What is the practice of fasting? Okay, so grow closer to God and uh, focus more on the Scripture. Okay, and why is that? So first, what is what is fasting? What's that? A cleansing. A cleansing, Zach. Um, it's set aside food to focus on prayer. It's usually in a time of stress. Yeah, typically, typically you'll see like if you look at historically when people fast, it usually is in response to a, a distress. Um, we'll, we'll get kind of to that in a second, but typically it is setting aside food. When you set aside food in order to pray, like why? Why would those things usually we pray before we we eat, right? You know how how are those things in? They they have such harmony together. Why why would they be? I'm not saying necessarily in conflict with one another, but what's the connection between those those things? You need, you need, what's that? Okay. So you need food, but you also need a connection with God even more. And that's, that's definitely true. What would you say? I was just saying, just denying yourself something. Maybe kind of a, I don't know what to call it a sacrifice, but denying yourself to something you normally would need um, in order to focus more on God. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the reality is, is that, 
you know, we become so habituated around food, right? You know, most of the time, probably within a certain time frame, we eat on a regular basis. And uh, with us as Americans, we don't, you know, in, in I wouldn't necessarily say just as Americans, but in a highly developed world, like food is something that is, is easily accessible. So even more so, where we don't even think about it, um, does, anyone, has anyone, does anyone go through a, a maybe either regular practice or has gone through periods of fasting? Okay. It's interesting, you know, because, and I've actually been thinking about this more, and I wasn't was going to talk too in detail, but I think it is something that, like, is maybe missing in, in a lot of, you know, what we do um, as Christians. Um, it's not one of those things that is, is ever said you need to fast. I mean, where prayer is, you need to pray, you need to consult Scripture. But we do see some of these spiritual disciplines, which end up being a uh, kind of a um, practice that you see happened in the past, that we've kind of shed, not you know, and 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 it may not, it may be a good thing to kind of go back and say, well, what was the the point of that, and what was the reasons for that? If you ever go through a fast, when you start like just cutting out food, so anyone ever, you know, a lot of us probably, if you're either in jobs or you know, in, in kind of the business of life, you're like, man, I didn't even have time to eat lunch today, right? Because you were so busy. Um, and sometimes you don't even think about it. You might just be a little bit hungrier later, but if you're so busy that you skip lunch, it's not until later it kind of dawns on you. But if you're like purposely set aside and say like, well, I got that time, but I'm just not going to eat. It starts to kind of like the physiological response to that is that you start to become more aware of how hungry you are. And when you have a, a uh, discipline of saying, I'm not going to eat consciously thinking about that, that physiologically you kind of start to respond to that. And so by sacrificing in that way, just like you, you know, all of you guys have kind of mentioned, is that then you can start to equate the pains and the need for hunger, for food, and start to replace that with the desire to seek what God wants to fill in that void. And so as you're hungry... You know, you start to kind of become even more conscious about not only how hungry you are, but if you're doing it for the purpose of fasting, you then become more conscious of the fact that you need God, you know, through that time. So it's almost like allowing, like, your hunger to kind of resonate with you and to continue to tell you, you know, seek the Lord, seek the Lord uh, during this time. Now, typically it was in, in times of distress when you see um, people fasting. You guys remember, like, one of the examples of fasting where, uh, you know, what's that? Okay, Esther, that was a time. Why would, she, why would there be fasting necessary for that? She asked um, Mordecai and all the Jewish people to pray and fast for her as she went to the king. Yeah. Yeah, and that, and that again, you know, you say, okay, we're not going to eat. At some point you're like, well, I've said, set aside not eating, and your body's going to say, I'm hungry. And you say, like, that's a reminder, like, continue to pray for Esther. Like, while well, I'm doing my own thing, like, she's going through this event, you know, for, for our people, for our sake. Um, you have in Jonah, you remember when he went to Nineveh and said, you know, if you guys don't repent, well, they, you know, sack, uh, sackcloth and ashes, and then they fasted uh, for that time. And it's, it's, again, to kind of seek the Lord, like, what do you want us to do 
get our hearts in the right motive. You know, we've neglected you for so long. Like, let's just start here and get back to the fact of like continually kind of recognizing you uh, through this event and seeking what your desires are. Like, I'm 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 setting aside food because I realize that you're more important than even my daily needs. Now, this is a little different, is because that we don't see them in a situation of need. So they're fasting for what? Direction. For direction. But they okay. are in They are in need. Okay, so... For, of direction. They are in need of direction, yeah. true. They, they, when want, I, yeah. they, they want to give this... You know, the biggest message about fasting is the message that it gives the Lord that, that I am willing to forsake uh, a needed uh, comfort yes. of, uh, of eating to, that I might more clearly hear from you. Mm-hmm. But the greatest neglect today is not fasting, but that people are unwilling to spend that time in prayer. Yeah. Yes. The mm-hmm. uh, you know, the is really just kind of a, a, a secondary I think that I think fasting is a helpful um, like if you if you've gone through a season of prayerlessness like it is a way to kind of like phys- physiologically kick in your you know understanding of that spiritual need. So yeah, when I say when I, I guess yeah, that's good that you corrected me on that. As far as like they are in need, and we are all in need of God's direction each and every day, even though we autonomously will kind of go throughout all our business sometimes without even, you know, thinking about, about God, which is right before the end of chapter 12, like, God was like, Herod Agrippa, you know, <laughs> you did not glorify me. And we all, in some sense, could say, like, man, there's times that, that I don't do that either, um, that I recognize myself as God uh, and not recognizing God as ruler overall. But they're, they're, they're seeking, again, so they're a healthy church, and what I wanted to kind of maybe show is that they're not in famine, at least we don't see that at this point. Um, they're not uh, being persecuted. Um, they're in a place that's kind of out of, that would have been out of Herod Agrippa's kind of um, reach a little bit, but he's no longer there. So they're in a place where they're like, you know, we've, we've got the leaders, we've got a growing church, like, what do you want us to do? And I think sometimes we get in that, we can get in those seasons, whether it's like, you know, we're going through some sort of um, difficulty and we seek the Lord. But we, on the flip side, we can be in a, in a uh, state of maybe like, um, I don't know, what would be, be the word? I, not just like going through the motions, but we're in a state of like, uh, the Lord is, you know, blessedness. But still like, hey, Lord, now what do you want me to do with how you've blessed us, right? I'm in a state where like, I don't know, do I just keep on coasting down this path? Or is there something else that you'd want, want us to do? And so that's what we see that their practice is. They're worshiping the Lord and they're fasting. So whether this is the leaders are doing this time um, or corporately they're doing this as a church. Um, uh, and there's, again, definitely when we see fasting times, there's often done in a corporate uh, environment that we're all kind of going through this together um, because prayer is definitely uh, seen powerfully when we're all kind of praying and seeking the Lord's will together. It shows kind of how we're all in the family of God, not just individuals doing their own thing. Um, but they, they're going, they're seeking what, uh, what from the Lord. And the Holy Spirit says to them, we don't know how, um, you know, 
but it says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Okay, so <clears throat> who is <clears throat> commissioning Saul and Barnabas? What's that? Okay, God. Right? So we see clearly here that it is calling out, this call is from God. Okay? Um, whose work were they to do? God's work, right? So God's calling them out to do the work that he has set um, before them to do. But who's involved in this process? Okay, the local church, right? Whether it's the leaders or the entire church uh, in this group together, that they have been involved in doing this, okay? And in some sense, you know, I think um, this is, you know, when we look at narrative and we see like what historically happened, um, this is where I see such an emphasis of where the, the local church can be such a strength to the people in the body, that it is God's desire, God's calling, God's will, but it is the local leaders that are involved in this and saying, you know what, we, the Holy Spirit has impressed upon us that you be sent, or that you do this work, or that you go and, uh, and do what is needed to do for our sake, you know, for God's sake and for His glory. Um, and uh, anyway, I won't, I won't get on. There's, there's certain things that I have, uh, you know, sometimes am disillusioned by in the church um, about how, you know, I remember, right, I guess I'll just say, after seminary, I was a little disillusioned when as soon as uh, kind of ending seminary, it's like, well, now where do we go? You know, now where are we sent to? And uh, a lot of the process that was set up was, well, just go send your resume out to uh, different places and, uh, you know, kind of like see if anyone has a, has a need. And it was very, um, very like me-centered and, you know, like, hey, wh- you know, do you need someone? I'll come out like this. You know, whereas like I think it's very important for, for local churches to kind of recognize and identify and help in that process. God uses any process that he wants to, whether you send a resume or whether you, you know, you, you call. But I think sometimes it's missing in, uh, you know, um, uh, in in the church process is is uh, is that involvement of everybody and even involvement of what are the needs in the local churches around us you know sometimes we we you know as churches can um, set up our own little mini kingdoms and kind of lose the fact that this is God's global church together and we but we see that here for these guys um, again from different areas brought around that they. Uh, the Lord has impressed upon them to send out Saul and Barnabas for this work. Now, they, they've only been, you know, you know, Saul and Barnabas has only been there for about a year. And uh, how long the church had been there, we're not exactly sure. Um, you know, but it, it, it wasn't that long. Uh, when they get to the point that they're at a state where they're like, you know what? The Lord has, has brought us these leaders, and these leaders are needing to be sent out. Um, to do the work that you've called them to do. And so how do they respond? How do leaders respond? They, they have heard this message, and then what do they do? Verse uh, 3. Uh, yeah, so as they were fasting and worshiping the Lord, then they get this message, and then what do they do? They fasted and prayed. Like they recognize continually um, that 
you know, is this, how are we going to prepare these men? How, what are we going to do? And they wanted to make sure, again, that they've heard that, that clear message from the Lord. So they fasted and prayed to get themselves right. And they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Because they knew what was happening was going to be a big work. And so we see that a healthy church seeks the Lord and responds by supporting the gospel work. And it is God's work, God's desire, God's calling on these men um, recognized by the local leadership and encouraged by the local leadership to send these guys out for whatever work that they're going to do. And I'm not making the point that every church, you know, gets to a point where, you know, they, they uh, are recognizing people and then sending them out. You know, you're either recognizing people and developing their gifts to stay because uh, not everybody went. Not all those guys went. It was just uh, Barnabas and Saul. Um, but Barnabas and Saul had been set apart by God to do that particular work. We knew that was Saul's mission, right? Because when he was saved, God said, you know, I am sending you. Where, where was God sending him to? Gentiles. The Gentiles. The Gentiles, right? And he will suffer for my name's sake. Barnabas is the encourager, the willing companion that is uh, his partner in this to go and uh, be... Um, Saul's companion as he, as he goes around. We're going to see how that kind of develops in a little bit. All right, we didn't get to the, the next place, actually their first step in the journey. Uh, so we'll get that um, next time we get together. We're going to have to cut it a little bit short so um, we, can, we can make this meeting. But we're starting to kind of see, you know, uh, this church in Antioch, what they look like. And again, Paul and Barnabas are going to stop by a lot in Antioch uh, over the course of these chapters. Um, but we're going to see them sent out and got how God will use them and direct them during these times. But I think, uh, you know, one of those things that maybe we can kind of put in the back of our minds um, is that one of those practices that, you know, it's kind of mentioned throughout Scripture, not directed, is this idea about fasting and prayer. Um, to kind of maybe look into a little bit, and that fasting could be something, whether it's just for one day I'm going to set aside food, um, because you know what, I just feel like, the Lord wants me to just be a little bit more uh, fervent in my prayer life, but physiologically that's something that um, the Lord can use to be a continual reminder as you seek His will in whatever uh, He desires for your life. Whether you're going through a time of difficulty or whether you're a time like you feel like you're flourishing, but you just like, you know what, should I just stay on this path? Or Lord, is there something else that you want me to do? And uh, we can see that as, as something that is a good discipline um, that each one of us can do. Any final questions or comments? We're just kind of like getting started. But uh... yes, Tim. It's a good example of a mission-sending church. Mission set. Yes. There's a book um, we have around the church office uh, that I think requires this short-term mission team read. Uh, this is an advertisement, I guess. Called it's called Holding the Rope. Yeah, that's a fantastic. I wasn't there, no, but I, that's a fantastic book. Yeah, and it's kind of, that's what's going on here. You know, you got these gifted guys there that recognize that. They're sending them on these mission trips. And, and what we're going to start to see is that by doing that, you know, by, by actually sending and getting rid of these guys, you know, they're not really getting rid of them, but as sending these guys out, it, it expands their view of what God is doing outside of just Antioch, to, they've already like gone sent aid to Judea, so they've kind of got that bridge 
to the home church, you know, if you want to call it that. But now they're like, let's go out and see what God is doing out in this world. And that, again, spreads for, for again, those types of churches that want to just be like in our, their own little like dominion to kind of spread out. And that's, that's why, you know, with our church, having so many people in missions and kind of going out and doing short-term missions over summers and things like that, you stay connected with what God is doing globally. Um, and so it's, a, it's an encouragement. What they did there is something that we can kind of emulate even here. So that's good. Uh, that's good, Tim. If you haven't read that book, it's a good book, whether you're going on a mission, mission uh, you know, trip or not. 